in the Word together. We thank you that we've been able to worship you. Many people have been off the BFGs this morning enjoying uh, instruction and dialogue about your truth. And then now, Lord, we, many of us, are now turning to the Word of God. Now, this is our lifeblood, Lord. This is your words. You're speaking to us. And Lord, we need this. So tune our hearts, Lord, to your Word. Help us tune out the things that so easily distract us. Many, many in here have busy schedules this week. Let them not drift to those things, Lord. Capture our minds, our hearts even now to be hearers of the word so we can be doers of it as well, Lord. Father, I thank you for those that are here, but we also think of those who can't be. Some are sick. Some cannot get out any longer, Lord. We love them. We miss them, Lord. And we know many tune in even now, Lord. We pray that you would bless them and strengthen them, help them to run well, Lord, until you say that's enough. Lord, we pray for our missionaries overseas. Grant them favor. We love them. We're so grateful for them. We thank you that you have called them to the places that they're at, Lord. May we be an encouragement. May we give and show that we care about them and we care about what they teach and how they disciple, Lord. May we be a great influence to them, Lord. Lord, thank you for this time together. Please bless it, Lord, now as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeff Perswell once said, when we judge, we always do so with insufficient information, deficient wisdom, and without divine authorization. <laughs> Did you hear that? There's several things that why we judge wrongly so often. One is we have insufficient information. We don't know both sides. We have not heard the whole story. We're deficient in wisdom because we have not sought God's word. We don't look to the word of God and able to give wisdom out. And then we don't have divine authority. And sometimes we judge like we do. This is a problem, and this is exactly what was going on in the church in Corinth. And as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 14, here we have the Apostle Paul uh, summing up, in a sense, finishing this long argument, this long section that he started in chapter 1, verse 10, as he was seeking to reestablish his apostolic authority. And the church is hurting for leadership. Um, they need his apostolic authority to come help straighten them out. And then he's going to start, and we'll see this next week, we're going to start into the issues. We call them issues the church had, sinful issues, chapter 5. We'll start into those issues. But now he's, he's got a transition, right? And, and when I read this, I said, oh, Paul, how are you going to deal with these extremely pressing issues, sinful issues, that is plaguing the church? And how are you going to transition from these strong words, from these strong words into dealing with these issues? Well, the Spirit of God, as always, as we study the Word of God, every, every jot and tittle, every word of God written here is inspired by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit leads Paul now to use a new illustration as he's going to take them from the hard words that he's been giving them and get them ready to hear how to deal with these difficult issues. And he uses the imagery of a father and a child. It's amazing. One illustration after another illustration, the Spirit has led him. And he certainly fits this role. We know him as the founder of the church, right? God sent him there. It coincides with this authority as a father figure. He was there, and in a sense, he brought the gospel that brought birth to this church here. So he's very much involved in the conception of this church. 
Now, in verses 14 through 21, we'll see Paul do several things. He's going to encourage them. He's going to admonish them. He's going to strongly urge them, plead with them. He's going to provide examples for them. And he's even going to threaten church discipline because he loves them. And he wants them to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the apostle's final appeal, before he starts to get into all the issues in the church, you'll see that he has this corrective thinking to move them back to the gospel. And and it isn't only just to correct their thinking. He he knows their behavior has to come along with biblical thinking, right? So you can think biblically but still do unbiblical things. He knows he needs to bring them in, so he decides to use himself as an example. And he believes that the gospel has transformed his life, and he knows that if it's transformed his life, it'll transform their life. And the problem with the Corinth church, like many of us, is in the times of sin, we don't look to the gospel, we look to ourselves. And this church was stuck, stuck in a very self-centered approach to the Christian life. Now, of course, this is an answer for us as well, isn't it? You want to solve conflict? You want to have joy in your life? It is the gospel I promise you, it is the gospel that always returns you back to the joy of walking with the Lord Jesus Christ and sensing and knowing his presence. Look with me at James 4. I want to remind you that um, though we're in 1 Corinthians, that they're not the only church struggling with selfishness. It is a problem to man. He is inherently selfish. Do you believe that you are inherently selfish? Uh, We probably should tell ourselves that. And here's how I say it. God, I am inherently selfish. If it was not for you, I would be consumed with my thoughts of myself. And when we really think about that, how much do we think about ourselves each day? Well, it causes problems when we live that way. When we're not gospelized people, we begin to cause all kinds of problems. Look at James 4 with me. James says, what is the source and quarrels and uh, conflicts among you? All right, there's, there's something that's causing these conflicts and quarreling that's, a, a, that's in the church. Now, James is written long before 1 Corinthians, right? Long before Paul gets to Corinth. Long probably, it's possible, even before his ministry to Galatia, does, does James write this. So it's a very early, early letter. This is a very young church. But notice they're having quarrels and conflicts because the apostle James has to deal with it. It's, is it not the source of your pleasures? that rage war in your members. So right there, we begin to realize that there is a pursuit of pleasure greater than a pursuit of the gospel at times in our lives. Could we say that? Can we think about our problems and our issues that you and I go through, whether it's marriage or finances or, or work or whatever it may be, wherever you're at, is there a pursuit of my pleasure the way I want things done versus what God is allowing James is pointing that out, isn't he? He says in verse 2, you lust and you do not have. See, there's a, there's a lustful desire for something. And it causes you to just desire more and more that you don't have. And then you commit murder. You go, well, I haven't killed anybody. But, but, but hatred comes when lust. Lust and hatred come together. We see it all the time on Dateline. Right? They come together. And maybe as Christians, we would not kill somebody, but there's a hatred maybe towards someone we're not willing to forgive. Then he says, 
you're envious and cannot obtain. So you look across the fence, you always want what the Joneses have, and you can't have it. So what happens? Your lack of having what you want causes fighting and quarreling. Maybe not with somebody else, but maybe in your own heart. Maybe you're here today and you're single and, and you don't have someone to fight with, so you fight in your own heart. You quarrel with God. Why has God allowed this? Do you not have because you do not ask? And you say, well, I ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not see because you ask for the wrong motives. See, pleasure, not God. Now, God's very pleasurable. But when we desire pleasure over God, we, we end up asking with wrong motives. We're not there to, to gain something we're asking for for the glory of the Lord. And James says, so that we may spend it on our own pleasures. And look at verse 4. Wow, come right between the eyes, James. You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Now, if you're a female in here, you go, why does he say adulteress? It's a feminine term, isn't it? Because the church is always in the feminine. So he's talking to all of us, males and females in here. He's speaking to the church, right? This is what this letter is written to. You adulteress, thus people who are supposed to be Christ's bride, look what happens. We become friends with the world and we end up with hostility towards God. You pursue things of the world and you will find yourself at odds with God. James is telling us that. And you want to lose your joy? Chase the world. You'll just lose your joy. It's an endless chase. It's Never find satisfaction. Therefore, Paul says, whoever wishes to be friends of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? I just love that little phrase. He just sneaks that in there. I.e., do you not really care about the sufficiency of Scripture? Oh, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's our first statement on our doctoral statement. It is on ours as well. But then when it comes down to what the Bible says, how we're to live we often dismiss the sufficiency of Scripture because of our problems. Oh, James says, is the Bible enough? Look at he says, he jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. You know what that means? He jealously desires that the Spirit has front and center in your life. Because the Spirit's job is to spotlight Christ and His Word. But what we do is when we seek pleasures that bring conflict and problems into our life, we sequester the Spirit. And we find ourselves joyless and in needless battles. And then here He comes. But He, that's God, gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace. You think you've got troubles? You think God can't overcome your troubles? He's got a greater grace. He's got a greater grace than all of our problems. Therefore, you want that grace? Here's what he says. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourself to God. Okay, God, I've been doing this my own way. I got nothing but problems. I'm going to do it your way. What does the Bible say? I'm going to go get counsel. If I can't find it myself, I'm going to get counsel to figure out how to live this life in my circumstances God's way. That's what he's saying here. Submit to God, and then you'll be able to resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Right now, he's, 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 he's bugging you, right? <laughs> he, he has some influence on you in some way because you haven't bent the knee to God in your life. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You want your joy back? Bend the knee. 
Draw near to God. James isn't mixing words here, right? Cleanse your hands. You know what that means? You've had a very personal part of you in dirt. You put something that God gave you to use for his glory and you've allowed it to be dirty in some way. James says, recognize this. Recognize that your hands are dirty, you sinners. We have to remember that, that we are sinners. If not for the grace of God, we go to hell, all right? And so he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. You're acting double-minded. You, say, you sing something on Sunday and you say something on different on Monday. That's a double-minded man, isn't it? It's a hypocrite, is really what he's saying. This is what happens when we don't draw near to the Lord. When we play around with God, when we play around with the gospel on certain days of the week, but we live contrary to that, we're double-minded, we're hypocrites. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. You know, there's time just to be miserable over your sin. Have you ever been there? I hope you've been there. I hope, I, I've been there. I, it's, I, I know that what that room looks like. God, why have I not believed you and let this sin back into my life? It's miserable. You realize this. Jesus has died for me. He's given me everything I need for life and godliness, and yet I still bow the knee to something that he had to die for. Oh, there's times to be miserable, friends. There's times to mourn. There's times to weep. There's times to take all the joy and laughter that the world just constantly sees in entertainment, turn that off, and start to mourn. And even let your so-called joy be turned to gloom. But then this is what happens. When you humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, He will exalt you. The Valley of Vision, the great teaching of the Valley of Vision coming from the Scriptures, but written in prophetic or poetic form, says that the way up is the way down. The way up is the way down. We bend our knee to the Lord and say, Father, I am miserable because I've chose to live in sin. I confess that. And I want to be right with you. As you make your way back to 1 Corinthians, this is the message of Apostle Paul. He is trying to bring this church back to a church that exalts Jesus Christ instead of exalting itself. And because it's exalted itself, there's problem after problem. Open immorality, we'll see next week, is in the church and nobody's doing anything about it. They become so selfish. And Paul wants them to mourn over their sin and turn to the gospel. Well, I want to give you five thoughts this morning as we dissect this text to try to live out this and understand this. But it's all coming from an appeal of a loving spiritual father. And I use the word spiritual father because Paul is not a father in the sense of what the Catholics talk about. That's, they've misrepresented this passage. But he is a spiritual father to this church in Corinth. And he desires for them to follow in the family lines of his heavenly father. Number one, the true spiritual father uses the gospel throughout the sanctifying, sanctification process. A true spiritual father uses the gospel throughout the sanctifying, sanctification process. 
And as, as we look back at verses 6 through 13, you see that this church was acting like wealthy, as this is what he said, like rich, wealthy um, kings who have made themselves kings, superior kings, because of their pride. That's what we learned last week. They made themselves out to be kings because of their pride. And then you have Paul who comes along and he says, I'm last of all. And we realize what he was talking about is he says, when everybody precedes themselves in, all the great soldiers and, and kings and warriors and stuff, in comes the last. There are the prisoners who have come to die. Paul says, that's who we are. And he says, we're fools for Christ. But the way you're acting is you don't care to be called a fool for Christ. You want to be superior. And then verses 11 through 13 the apostle says, I gave everything for Christ. And here he's showing this fatherly leadership. This is the way God wants us to follow him. Look at verse 14 as we launch into this text. Verse 14 says this, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you, my beloved children. Now, certainly in light of these last verses, 6 through 13 there, the Corinthian church was acting shameful, Right? It isn't hard to read and study as we did last week that we realize they're acting very shameful. And even though they seem to be beyond hope in some ways, Paul knows that the gospel can change people. He believes that. He preaches that. He lives that. And in his fatherly figure here, he's beginning to um, emerge from, from the cloud and shroud of of their arrogancy. He's emerging above that to show this godly spiritual father figure in order to bring them a warning and bring them back to gospel living. That's his goal. Notice the word shame. Intrepo is the Greek word here. It means to cause to turn about or to disrespect someone or, or to put them to shame is, of course, the idea here. But notice in the verse, verse 14 says that's not Paul's goal. Notice that. He said, I did not write these things to shame you. This is not his goal. This is not what he's doing, that they may deserve it in some way. But see, the gospel elevated God's grace in Paul's eyes. See, he knew. He knew who he was before salvation. He, he remembered the great work that God had done. So it motivates him even to deal with people who act shamefully. He's such a good example of biblical leadership. And so shaming is what they deserve from a world standpoint of view, but God doesn't give his children what they deserve. Instead, the Spirit leads the Apostle Paul to a word that we translate amonish or exhort. Nutheto is the word. We get nuthetic from that, which we get the word to admonish. It's a biblical counseling word we've used. But here it's in a present active tense here. And Paul is clearly defining that my present continual goal is not to shame you. Not to shame you. But to exhort you and instruct you to see you glorify Christ and, be, and turn away from this fallen worldly wisdom that you're listening to and embrace the gospel. That's what he's saying here. See, true Biblical admonishment. We need to hear this. True biblical admonishment means to correct without provoking or embittering. Now that might be your goal, and somebody may turn embittered because that's because they won't repent of sin. But when we admonish, our goal is to, 
is to come to bring them, to save them from the trouble that is coming, the sin always, the wages of it brings death. We know that. Death to relationships, death to all kinds of things. The goal when we admonish a brother or sister in the Lord is not to embitter them, but to bring them back to the joy of walking with Jesus Christ. Now certainly these include warning, right? Admonishment includes warning. But there is a strong yet loving appeal that Paul has here. He's showing his fatherly figure. These struggling Christians need to receive this and return to the gospel. Oh, what a good reminder for us who counsel, for us that lead, who anyone who loves somebody, who wants them to return to walking with Christ, we use the word admonishment, not shame. And look what Paul calls them. Notice in the verse, verse 14, he calls, my beloved children. And I hear this imagery of fatherly love towards these spiritual children, so contrary to the spiritual leaders in their life. The spiritual leaders in their life are teachers and disciplinarians. They're not shepherds. They don't care for the souls of of the children. But that's not Paul. He's so different than them. He cares about their souls. He cares about their relationship with Jesus Christ, their Savior who was slain for them and resurrected. In all of Paul's 13 epistles that we know of that he wrote, um, we're not sure if he wrote Hebrews or not, but in the 13 that we know of, never, never does he refer to God's children as disciples. Jesus refers to us as disciples, but he doesn't. You know what he always calls us? Always calls the church? My children. That's how he refers. He has this tender care, this love for the people of God, even in their problems. When you study 1 Corinthians, it's easy to go, I I like to call them something. They're not acting like the family of God. They're acting like the family of Satan in some ways. But yet, Paul, look at this care and gentleness that he has. Now, children need certainly to be exhorted and admonished. They need to be encouraged and led. And they need to be disciplined and appealed to, right? We do that as we parent, as Christian parents. This this is a problem, though. This church, just like Hebrews writers said, you ought to be teachers by now. This church is Christians who have returned to infancy and are nursing a spiritual bottle and are missing the meat of the word. And they're, they're atrophying. That's a good word. If you've ever been in a cast for a long time, your muscles atrophy and get very weak. That's what's happening to this church. They put themselves into the cast of sin and they're deteriorating. And Paul says, oh, man, we got to wake up. And he's going to shoot some shots across the bow here that will show that their selfishness has resulted in a godless behavior and a departure from the gospel. Look at verse 15 with me. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, listen to this, Single, a single uh, pronoun here. I <laughs> became your father through the gospel. Well, here in verse, verse, 10, verse 15, he continues to see this, we, we continue to see this affection that he has towards this difficult church. The gospel causes him to be sensitive here. And the gospel is the key to this spiritual language that they're talking about. Notice he says, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ. Now this is, 
well-worded. Of course, the Spirit of God's wording this. He uses the word tutor. It's an interesting word. In the Greek, it is, a, is the idea of someone who guides or instructs. The example would be that a father, it's usually of a wealthy family, a father would have a slave of his, a very special slave, someone that he could entrust his children with. That slave would be entrusted with these children. That slave would make sure that that child gets to school, um, that that child gets his homework done, that that child gets his chores done. And I know there's a lot of you moms out going, can I have one of these? <laughs> this, this word here um, is described in many ways. He, he, he would not be the father, and, he, and he's really acting on behalf of the father. The, the, the servant here, this tutor, uh, was not even a family member, though he would maybe be treated like one. But though he loved the child, and doubtlessly some of these tutors would love the children that they cared for, they did not have the natural affections of the one who brought him into this world. They would not have the affections of the true father. And the father had a different relationship with the son, and so he produced the son, and he ultimately has authority over the son. Now, this word's used in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. And let me read this to you to help you understand the power of this word. Because Paul's saying, I, you can have countless tutors, but you only have one father. So it says here in Galatians, this is Paul dealing with the Galatian church. He says, therefore the law has become our tutor, same word, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Well, we'll stop right there. So the Bible says that the law was not the ultimate purpose of God. The ultimate purpose was to bring us to Christ because he knew that we could not keep the law. But the law is good, right? The law brings us to a need of Christ. If you remember in our study in Exodus, when we were in, 20, in chapter 20 there, we looked at the Ten Commandments, and I think we did three or four sermons, working our way down there, understanding the law and its purpose, even under the New Covenant. And it isn't hard to study the law, and we realize, wow, we didn't get past the first one. And we have trouble with it. And, and, but the law is to help us see a need for God, see a need for his sacrificial work through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the law became our teeter, tutor leading us to Christ in order for us to be justified by faith. Because the law, when we look at the law, we go, Lord, thank you for the law. The law is perfect. The law shows your character, but it shows me I am a sinner. And I need something greater than the tutor. I need the Father who grants faith. See, that's what the law does. And that's why we keep teaching that the law has a purpose even in the new covenant, don't we? The next verse says, but now that the faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So here we get the idea of this, this word, this, this tutor is temporary, it has a role, but there's a greater position. There's a greater position and here in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that context falls to Paul. He says back in verse 15 again here, he says, Yet you would not have many fathers. Well, Paul planted the church in Corinth. He stood as their, their spiritual position as their father. He, he was the first to share the gospel with them. And that gospel took conception, didn't it? It was conceived in them. Faith conceived into them and gave them new birth. He knows that. He carried that message. And so he becomes this spiritual father to them. And notice he says, for in Christ Jesus, I became 
your father through the gospel. Well, first of all, he doesn't just become their father because he was carrying this message. He knows it comes through Jesus Christ. Man, we believe in Christ alone, don't we? I mean, a church, a reformed church like ours that believes in reformed doctrine, we protect that truth with everything, right? Because if it isn't Christ alone, if it's Christ plus something, people are damned to hell. And that's what the world teaches in some way. So many other religions, they play around with Jesus. He's a good guy. He did this, he did that. But you better do this, these 10 steps of something else. Oh, those people are headed for hell. We protect the doctrine of Christ alone. And so Paul says, look, for in Christ Jesus, that's the only way this can be. I became your father, notice, through this good news that he sent me to do. And it clears the way in so many ways. It shows us because Paul's affection for his spiritual children in faith, he was undeterred. He's undeterred. He keeps bringing them back to the gospel. He didn't come and say, oh, you guys really have it going on here. You guys have a lot of money and really nice buildings. You're really doing well. He cuts through all that and brings the gospel. That's what he knows they need. Secondly, no matter how helpful the ministries or ministers of other people, right? There's all these other people that thought they were great orators of truth. Humanly, they owed everything to the Apostle Paul in a sense. Because Paul did not come with these pervasive words of wisdom and this eloquence of speech. He brought the gospel to them. And not only that, he remains an example to them. And that brings us to our second point. The result of Christ's great commission is multiplication through repeated discipleship. Now, this is such an important point. The result of Christ's great commission is multiplication through repeated discipleship. Look what he says in verse 16. Therefore, I exalt you, be imitators of me. With this statement, Paul takes the father-child illustration a step further. And in doing so, he articulates and sums up the point of the entire section that he's in here. Follow me. I'm the true spiritual father to you. These other yahoos who keep trying to drift you away from the gospel, from salvation in Christ alone, to this, to this integration of worldly philosophy and the Bible, those guys, I'm trying to bring you away because what a true father does, he's already told them, right, in the preceding passage. The true father makes him out as a fool for Christ. Because how many of these other people want to be a fool for Christ? They, they would... They would be ashamed to be called a fool because don't you know who I am? That's how they would look at themselves. But not Paul. He says, I'm a fool for Christ. Notice he went hungry in the preceding verses. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was neglected of poor clothing, right? He didn't didn't have proper clothing. He was roughly treated. It means to, to hit somebody in the face. We looked at that last week. And he found himself homeless. Only a true father for the sake of the gospel would eke out a living on your own so you could be a blessing to others. Remember, they weren't even supporting him. He has to write later on to say, don't muzzle the ox. Get the guy who's treading the mill, you got to give him a little bit of the grain. They weren't even caring for him. Only a true spiritual father would eke out their own living to make sure the gospel was going further. Only a true spiritual father would suffer persecution and slander in order to bring reconciliation. And only a true spiritual father 
would choose to be called, listen to this, the scum, remember this? The scum of the world and the dregs of all things. That's a true spiritual father. He'll do whatever it takes to bring his children to Christ. That's the Apostle Paul. Because of the gospel, Paul had conformed, been conformed to the image of Christ. And he says, look, you imitate me. See, fleshly fathers say, do as I say, not as I do. Huh. We might have said that, huh? <laughs> but not, not, not a true spiritual father. See, a true spiritual father repents of sin like Paul would have done, walks with God in a consistent way because of the love of gospel, and then he can say, I'm going to disciple you. I'm going to teach you to follow me because I'm following Jesus. See, this is the role of a spiritual father. This is the role of a spiritual leader, male or female. See, but not men who are gripped by the gospel. They don't say, do as I say, not as I do. They desire to be a picture of Christ. They want their children to have a proper view of the gospel. They want a gospelized life. And so the statement, imitate me, has considerable significance for the multiple problems that the church is going through. So next chapter, we're going to get into this very, very blatant immorality. So guess what Paul's saying? As he enters into that, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's going to set himself as an example of how to let the gospel control your morals. He's going to set an example how single people are to live in chapter 7. I mean, issue after issue that the church is going through, lawsuits, um, just selfishness and mishandling the Lord's table and, and treating the poor poorly. He's going to go example after example after examples and he's going to use himself as he follows Christ. He's going to use himself as an example. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? First Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. See, this isn't a new statement in any way. He says this over and over in First Thessalonians. He tells them to become imitators of us and of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, excel still more in this. So Paul's actual behavior reflects Jesus both in example and in instruction. I'm following Jesus. The way he lived his life and what he taught. See, that's, that's why we appreciate spiritual leaders, don't we? Because we want to come underneath them. We want to follow them as they lead us to Christ. Before I leave this verse, fathers, let me just give us a bit of an exhortation here. And certainly this is a good time for us to look at this. I've said this many times. If you're a parent in here, um, we probably look back at ourselves and go, ooh, wish I would have done that better. I wish I wouldn't have said that or acted that way. Well, certainly in, under grace and under this wonderful new covenant that we have, we have an opportunity to repent of those things. And once they're repented of, we, we're able to put that back and, and say, Lord, thank you. And we're now to press on for the upward calling. So dads in here, if you failed in these ways, if you look and you're hearing this and you go, oh, Scott, you're describing what I'm not or haven't been, it's time to repent. Confess that to the Lord. Say, God, I have not been the father that you've called me to be. I confess that. And now, Lord, help me turn from that, Lord. Help me Seek and run after you, Lord. Put men into my life that will help me. Let me be discipled by somebody else 
who has has already learned to walk with you so I can follow them to you. Men, I really challenge you. Don't miss that opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity to discipleship that this church offers in so many different venues. Ladies, wives and mothers, you might be sitting there, go get them, Scott. 1 Corinthians 11 is coming, and it's talking about head coverings. So buckle up. (laughs) And though I don't think head coverings personally are for us right now, but there's a great lesson of the beauty of submission that God uses in a woman's life. And how she destroys the view of the church when she fails to submit to her husband and look to Jesus Christ. So in all of this, brothers and sisters, there's times to say, oh God, I have not been the spiritual example. I cannot turn to the woman next to me or the man next to me or someone next to me and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Forgive me. Do you need to do that today? Do you need to say, Lord, forgive me? If you have and you're moving forward, Paul says, forgetting the things in the past or certain things we have to put back there. You can't, I've had men and women meet with me and they say, I've asked my children's forgiveness. They're out of the home, but they just beat me up with that. Hey, if you're, if you're right with God and them, you just got to let that go and say, okay, they, they're not saved or they don't understand that. But the next passage, Paul says, press on. Press on for the upward calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now that means I start following Jesus. And I start getting people, men and women in my life who love Jesus. And and I start being discipled by others who love Jesus. And and I learn to act like him. Oh, brothers and sisters, press on. Our time is short here on this earth. And for a little while, for a little while, we can be examples of Christ to others. Look at verse 17 as we turn back to the text. He says, for this reason, I've sent you Timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Well, for this reason, Paul reminds them and remains very passionately concerned about this church in Corinth and says, I have sent to you Timothy. Now, this is a bit of a difficult statement because very little is known about Timothy's trip here. In fact, it's a little confusing because if we drop down to chapter 16, verse 10, Paul closing out the letter says, now if Timothy comes. But he says in this verse, I have sent Timothy. It's Eris. So we get the idea of a past tense there. And you just go, well, is he going or is he not? So here's what I landed on. I think Timothy's on the way. Despite what 16 says, and here's why I, say, I think this. Because, <laughs> because knowing Paul, Paul said, hey, you're going to Corinth. But on the way, you're going to stop in Ephesus, Philippi, and Thessalonica and deal with a few issues there. And Paul's going, man, who knows if he makes it? (laughs) Right? These guys are walking, riding horses, they're on ships. Who knows if this guy's going to make it? I think that's what he's going through. And Paul himself, remember Paul wanted to go to Asia, and he said, the Spirit kept me from going. So, So though he says Timothy's on the way, and I think he's physically on the way, which takes months and months and months to get there. He knows that anything can change. And notice, notice he said, I'm sent my, my spiritual son to you. Look at this. Who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. I love this. Think about this. This is discipleship 101. This is God giving Paul a young man that he was able to pour his life in. 
Many theologians say that he was with Paul for 15 years before he took the pastorate at Ephesus. Fifteen years Paul poured into him, used him, sent him different places. He was Paul's go-to guy. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. You've got to see this text. We all want to be Timothys. We, we should all want to be Timothys. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Verse 19. But I hope in the Lord... Jesus, to send you Timothy shortly. Prison epistle. Paul's in prison. Remember that, right? He's in house arrest in Rome, chained to guards. He's winning the whole palace to the Lord, I think. But he writes and goes, look, my hope, Philippi church, is to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your conditions. Look, I can trust this guy to report the right truth. Man, you've got to have a right-hand guy where you can tr be trusted. You can say, I know Timothy's going to go there. He's going to access this thing biblically. He's going to come back, and he's going to tell me what the truth is. He's not there to butter me up because I'm in prison and I'm the Apostle Paul. I know I can trust him. Look at verse 20. Now, look at this. I love this. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who would genuinely be concerned for your welfare. You ever hear that term? It's a little bit of an old term. Maybe Little House in the Prairie-ish, kindred spirit. Or maybe it's not that, it's the other gal that we watched. Kindred spirit, I have a kindred spirit. <laughs> uh, don't get caught up and think, oh, that's not, I love that term. That means we think alike. <laughs> kindred spirit, this, husbands and wives, you should have a kindred spirit with your wife or your husband, if you're both in the faith. You should have a kindred spirit. You've, you've discipled each other. You're growing in Christ. You, you, you go to church to worship and to love each other more and to confess sin and walk with God and know Him better. Um, you're fellowshipping with the church. You're serving in the church. You're part of the body of Christ. You should have a kindred spirit with the person who you're married to. But then you should have a kindred spirit with other brothers. Oh, you should sit in our seminary classes some days. There's a pile of guys in there that have been studying now into their fourth year, and you want to talk about a bunch of kindred spirit men. They are linked together. And no matter where God sends these men, they will always love each other. Some of my best friends are men I went to seminary with. We talk regularly. We weep regularly together. Oh, there's a kindred spirit here. You want to be a kindred spirit. That means you, you've linked yourselves in the same truth. Look at verse 21. I've I got to get moving here. But for they, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know who this all is, but I don't want to be in that all. <laughs> Demas has forsaken me for the pleasures of this world, he says at the end of 2 Timothy, the final end of his letter. Do you like to be that guy? When Paul's letters are all done, he points you out and says, you, you forsake the world because you want it pleasure. You forsake him because you want the pleasures of the world. I don't know who this all is about, but notice they all sought their own interest. Boy, it is easy, brothers and sisters, to pursue our own interests, isn't it? See, we wake up thinking about our own interests. You're, you, you, we get consumed with our own interest. And it, what it tells you is we're not well discipled. See, when we're, we become more well-discipled, we become more like Christ who laid down his life, who stepped out of heaven to breathe the air of heaven. He now breathes the air of dust. He comes here, takes on humanity. And you go, oh, no, don't compare me to Jesus. Yes, because the Bible says he is an example for us. 
Philippians chapter 2, just before this passage. And then Paul says, I, I imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so it tells us when we are so self-centered and we, and we never are involved in ministry, we don't help, we're not serving, we're just come in, get a little sermon, and out we go. And by the time Monday morning comes along, I'm just absorbed with my self-interest. It tells us we're not discipled. See, the Bible is telling this is the result of multiplication. Paul found Timothy. He poured everything he knew into Timothy. I've met with some of our young guys who said, look, guys, that's all I got. I got no more. I'm going to go study and give you some more. Pouring into somebody else. And now, listen, you might need to be, be honest with yourself. Look, Scott, I need to be poured into. Go sign up and get involved with soul care. Go to DTP. Get with somebody. and Get sharpened. Grow in the Lord here. Turning back. Oh, well, one more verse here. Because this is fascinating. Verse 22. But you know of his proven worth. Ah, above reproach. He's got a proven worth to the ministry, right? He can be entrusted with the gospel. He's not going to mess it up. He's not going to use it for himself. He has a proven worth that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel. Paul's not saying, well, he just really is nice. He came and put salve on my sores from the chains that I'm in. No, he was with me. He proved to be faithful because he served in the gospel. That's what Paul cares about, the furtherance of the gospel. Look, we're going to die here soon. Do you understand that? You only have a few miserable years left. And then you're going to be with Jesus. So what are you going to do with those few measly, miserable years <laughs> compared to heaven? Oh, be discipled, brothers and sisters. Prove yourself worthy of the gospel. And Paul says, look, he served me like a child serves his father. See, that's what he's after with the Corinth church. Go back to this passage here and come to verse 17. And he says, he will remind you of the ways which are in Christ Jesus. Timothy had a singular task. It was to remind the Corinth church that to imitate Paul was to follow Christ. Notice the phrase, in Christ there. This is perfect because it means Paul believed himself to be discipled by Christ. And then he says, of my ways, plural. So both of the behavior and the instruction that I learned from Christ follow that example. And Timothy's there to help you get there. Christ, Paul says, Christ discipled me. Remember, Paul went into the wilderness for three years into the desert. What a seminary experience as Christ discipled him. Christ discipled Paul. Paul discipled Timothy. Timothy disciples Corinth. Who are you discipling? And have you been discipled? See, so Timothy here is now the example of what God did in Paul's life. And knowing that the Christian, the Corinth Christians were weak and they wanted to follow men, Paul says this, what Timothy will teach you is taught in every church, i.e., every church that Pauline churches is, look, I'm not telling you to do something we're not doing in every other church. Isn't that cool? And one of the things I love about doctrine and truth of the Bible is that men 2,000 years ago are doing the exact same things we were doing. They're writing soul care stuff. They're, they're, they're teaching DTP. They got Bible studies going on because they're discipling one another because time is short, death is coming, or Christ is going to turn, and are we ready when he comes? Oh, we want to be found faithful, brothers and sisters. Third thought, the wisdom of a fallen world is no match for the power of the gospel. The wisdom of the fallen world is no match for the power of the gospel. Look at verse 18 with me. Now, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. <laughs> well, to conclude this long section that began way back in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul ends with a direct warning to some troublemakers. Notice he says, now some, 
have become arrogant. Well, first, you have to understand, most trouble in churches starts with a couple of people. They become disgruntled. They don't like the preaching, the singing, the doctrine, or whatever it may be. And they start to gossip and start malice, using slander and malice. And, of course, that spreads like a cancer, and it moves about. But there's just some right now, and I like this. I think what Paul's saying, look, there's hope for you. There's a few there. We're going to find out who they are. We're going to deal with them. But he also realizes that, that trouble is coming um, from within the church. He said, there's some of you. So it's not outside the church, because some might say, well, there's all these influences on the church from the outside. No, there is that, but that's, it's, the problem's coming from within. The problem is the church. Third, we know there's instigators who dis- decisively are anti-Paul, right? Because he switches to these singular pronouns about himself. They don't like him. And then fourth, Paul addresses the entire church because disunity spreads like a cancer. And these, these few have disdained Paul's authority, and probably his theology, I would imagine, and to the degree that the whole church has allowed this unchristian behavior to go on, and nobody's done anything about it. You see that? This is happening in the church, and the rest of the church is going, well, I guess we'll just wait for Paul to come and take care of it. You got a guy living with his mother-in-law. Somebody wake up and go, hey, <laughs> I, I don't know my, all, my, all my Bible, but I think that's wrong. See, this is what happens when you don't deal with sin, even in individuals. And Paul says, there's some troublemakers. Now, Paul places a well-designed shot across the bow here. Notice what he says, as though I were not coming to you. See, he's reinforcing the statement that Timothy is coming on his behalf. And doubtlessly, there was theirs in their arrogance to be saying, yeah, not after what we said to him. He doesn't dare show his face around here. Remember, we talked about that last week. Paul said that they, they thought his his person was contemptible, his speech was contemptible, and they disdained his voice and his person. So I think he's saying there's people, just, these arrogant guys, whoever they are in there, say, ah, oh, Paul doesn't dare show his face. He's going, oh, you better not put your bottom dollar on that because I'm coming. I'm coming. And Timothy's coming first. And this is what happens when leadership does not lead in churches in a godly, loving way that elders are taught to lead. There will always be uh, those who rise up with worldly wisdom, unbiblical truths, and try to pull the church away. It happens all the time. Paul warned them in Acts 20. He's headed for his trial. He says, when I leave, there'll be people rise up among you who will drag the church away. Now, verse 19. I'm hurrying. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, first of all, he wants them to know he's very serious. There's probably some that are not taking him serious that he's coming. But notice Paul says, if the Lord wills. If the Lord's will. Everything Paul did, he sought the will of the Lord. That's, That's a man of God, right? You know, James says, you know, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. James reminds us that we should search the Lord. Our life is like a vapor. And so Paul always searches the Lord, but not like these Corinthians. They, they were like mavericks, right? They, they cared of their own divine leading. Paul said, no, no, I'm going to trust the divine leading of the Lord. And I think that's real different than them. But notice the next section. It says, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Well, I think this is an amazing statement. Paul is saying, up to this point, you have been clinging to your elegant speech, and you've been, le- been belittling mine. 
But there's a power coming that no eloquence of words will stand against. You know what he's talking about? He's bringing the gospel. And you think your eloquence and your, your worldly wisdom is going to stand up against, a, listen to this, a crucified and resurrected Savior? You think you're going to stand up against that? Oh my goodness, he brings, he's bringing the thunder here. He said earlier, we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to, to the Jews, the Gentiles is foolishness, but those who are called Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. So Paul knew and believed in the power of the gospel and that there was no amount of human wisdom that could stand against that. Here, we're going to see where your power lays, <laughs> right? How can you stand against Jesus Christ? Here's what I think he means by that. I'm coming with the Godhead. Let's see. Let's see how your eloquence stands up that. I'm coming with the crucified, resurrected Savior and the entire Godhead because I have the Spirit of God who spotlights the perfect finished work of Christ. I have Christ who, who, who exalts the flawless plan of the Father and His sovereignty over all things. I have God the Father granting to his elect the very mind of Christ, chapter 2, verse 16. There's no power like the power of the Godhead. So Paul's bound and determined to reveal that their eloquence and their worldly wisdom is no match for the source of the power of the Godhead. And this is how the gospel penetrates and how when we become arrogant, we bend our knee forth. The sufficiency of grace supplies the power to, perf to the perfect, uh, excuse me, to perfect our weaknesses. The sufficiency of grace supplies the power to perfect our weaknesses. Look at verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Now you can kind of see where I've been going with this. In verse 20 here, Paul again exposes this false security that the Corinthians have in their fallen human wisdom. In comparison to the power of God, sinful Human philosophy has nothing to boast about. Notice he uses the word kingdom of God. This is very important here. He's concerned about the kingdom of God. And listen, nobody speaks more about the kingdom of God than Jesus Christ. Paul does not use the phrase kingdom of God very often. And he uses it sporadically in his other epistles. But where he uses it the most is in this passage. I mean, in this text, 1 Corinthians. So what Paul is doing here is he's speaking of the kingdom of God. He's making sure, sure that they understand, yes, the kingdom of God is now, but not already. So he says, you, here's what his, he's saying here. I've got to sum this up quickly. He said, look, um, you are acting like the spiritual kingdom of God. And everybody who's received Jesus Christ as their Savior, we are part of the spiritual kingdom of God. You're acting like you have the future power of the physical kingdom of God. That's what he's saying to him. So your arrogance has led you to think. You become arrogant. And for the kingdom of God, he says, does not consist of words. You think because you have all these words and you're eloquent and all these things that you do that you have the power. So you're taking the spiritual kingdom of God and acting like you have the physical kingdom of God on earth. And he's rebuking them for that. Oh, wait till the real physical kingdom of God is on the earth. What differences we'll see. And you got to see this. See, Paul's living his life through his own weaknesses. Look, he comes and says, I know I'm weak. I'm, I, I'm following Jesus Christ. Christ gave up his authority in a sense, right? He veiled his deity, came and he walked on this earth and he allowed men to punch him and spit on him. They allowed men to act arrogant in front of him and eventually kill him. Paul knows that's the mark of the, 
of the spiritual kingdom of God. But they're acting like they're already in the kingdom physically. And he says, this isn't a mark of Christians. This isn't how we walk. Paul, Paul dealt with this when he said, as he, as he laid out all the difficulties he was going, particularly a thorn in the flesh, he said that God told me my grace is sufficient for you for powers perfected in weakness. And so he, he said, this is the way we live. We live in great, great contrast to this. Look, brothers and sisters, I know that things are going on in our government, in our world, irk us at times. But the Bible says, listen, the Bible says we are to live quiet in godly lives in this present world. It doesn't mean we don't vote. It doesn't mean we don't stand up for things that are completely contrary to the Bible. We will do that, and we, and we do do that. But the Bible instructs us to live quiet and, and godly lives in this present world. That's not what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, look, we got all the power. Look at all our gifts. Look how great we are. Our job is not to attract attention to ourselves. Our job is to attract attention to Jesus. Do you understand that? And look, if Christians don't figure this out, well, we're going to be just like the rest of the world. We're all wanting some utopia on this earth where we know there's never going to be a utopia. So the Prince of Peace comes back and sets everything right. Hey, are you living a quiet? You go, I can live quietly. And godly life in this present world. See, this is what the Corinth church was not doing. Five, and last thought quickly, true spiritual fathers gently instruct and lovingly discipline. Well, look at verse 21 and buckle up because it's strong. Verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Well, Paul wraps up this section with another father-child illustration here, doesn't he? But this tone is not as comforting. <laughs> Notice that he knows there's opposition. He knows that the church themselves is not going to do church discipline on these people. And so, in a sense, he is threatening church discipline here, isn't he? Paul says, I'm going to be obedient to the Lord and I'm not going to base it on popular opinion. You know some of the marks against Riverbend that we hear out there talking? Oh, you know, they practice church discipline over there. As though that's a bad thing. As though you don't go there. Maybe they're telling people don't go there because you're living in sin. They're going to eventually deal with this, right? I mean, that's what we do. We love each other enough to say, oh, brother, sister, oh, Scott, if you need to deal with me, hey, um, that's sinful, you're right. I'm so sorry. I repent, Lord Jesus. And then we're right and we keep moving on. That's what the Bible teaches, right? But here he's saying they have not done this. And he can't count on the church. He can't count on them to do what God told them to do. No, let me say this. What Jesus told them to do. Matthew 18 is right out of the words of who? Jesus. So when you reject church discipline, you reject the words of Jesus Christ. And so he can't count on them. But notice he says, what do you desire? Do you want love and gentleness? You want the rod. Uh, I don't know. I have to think about that for a minute. <laughs> do you want the gentleness of a shepherd who leads you back into the green grass of Jesus Christ in the cool waters of joy? Or you need a good beating? I mean, come on. Is there anybody that wants that? I want the chief shepherd. I want the shepherd. Lead me to the grass. Bend me back to my joy. 
Paul's not sure they're doing that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, listen to these words. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's your guy's job. Now listen to my job. For they keep watch, our job, elders, keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. It's daunting. Every one of your souls we pray for and think about and care for and figure out how we can help you be discipled more. Because someday we got to stand in front of our Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, and say, here's what you did with Bob or Leslie or whoever your name is. I'm trying to use names that I don't think are in here. Sorry if your name is in here. Can I use you, Brian? What'd you do with Brian? Because he shepherds me and I shepherd him and so forth, these other elders in here. What'd you do with him? Did you lead him to me or did you lead him to worldly wisdom? See, we have to answer that. But the next part, you got to listen to the next part of this. You go, oh, Scott, boy, glad you're an elder. Well, listen to this part. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. See, some sheep just, man, you just, come on, we're going up to the greener pasture. Let's go. And they're just right behind you. Come on, pastor, let's go. Isn't this great? Isn't it fun knowing Jesus? It's one of the reasons why we love teaching seminary. It's like a kid in a candy store. Here's a bunch of guys who just pour in theology, and they're going, yeah, more, more, more. But then there's another aspect to the herd <laughs> that loves to live down where the grass is short, the flies are bad, and there's no water, and they, they want to stay there. And you go, Why? There's a wolf right there. He's licking his chops at you. See, this is, this is what makes it grieving for leaders when people go, hey, friend, hey, brother, sister, that's sinful. You're not thinking like a Christian. And you go, get out of here, and you kick the shepherd. Now, the rest of the verse says this, for this would be unprofitable for you. See, that's what he's dealing with. A church that has a loving shepherd who's trying to lead them to the truth, but they're kicking him. They're kicking him. And it's unprofitable. So he says, look, you got two options. You got the love and gentleness of a shepherd, or you got his staff, and it's got a hook on the end, and it's going to grab you. One of the two. Well, Paul finishes this way before he deals with these very difficult issues. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God disciplines the ones he loves. So God must love Corinth. He loved that church. His son died for this church. And he wants them back. And so he's going to go into immorality and lawsuits and singleness and marriage and divorce. He's going to get into the nasty, ugly dirtiness of our sins because he loves his flock. And he's preparing them for him. So buckle up, church. We're heading into some difficult issues in this book. And we're either going to say, oh, Lord, I want your love and your gentleness to get out of this sin, or he brings the rod. And he can discipline you far more than elders can or a church can. And so it's time to walk with the Lord, church. Time is short. Father, thank you for this text, Lord. And as we transition into communion, I can't think of a better way and right now to introduce communion. You have sent your son to die for us. He has faithfully, he lived a faithful, perfect life. He shed his own blood, gave his own life for us.
so that we might live quiet and godly lives in this age, sharing the gospel, giving people hope. And so, Lord, as we take the table, if we take the Lord's table and remember what you've done, Lord, if there's some of us in this room that need our hearts pricked and pushed a little bit on some sin that we've let stay there, God, come get us. But let us all worship. Let us all be reminded this morning of Jesus' faithfulness to us. In your name, amen.